Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can just call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I live in the United States with my beautiful senior cat, Senor Antonio Botones. I'm passionate about animals and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this crazy, wild thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdelin.com. If you like my show, please subscribe to it so you never have to miss an episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jen. And this week, I'm back with Dr. Jeffrey Lockwood, Professor of Natural Sciences and Humanities at the University of Wyoming. He's also a librettist, and this week we are talking all about locusts. From the pharaohs of Egypt to the cattle farmers of the present, locusts have a pretty bad reputation. We are talking a plague of biblical proportions, and it's happening right now. East Africa is under siege from these ravenous insects. And the swarm is on the move. Climate change and warming temperatures in particular may favor more and more of these special forms of grasshoppers showing up and wrecking havoc on a big chunk of the human population. Right now, we are talking billions of flying locusts. And while they don't bite us, they do consume pretty much everything else in sight, leaving farmlands and croplands destroyed. Our relationship with nature is a delicate balance, and it doesn't take much to throw things out of equilibrium. A little later in the show, I'm going to talk about what's being done, including some creative options, mm-hmm, tasty locust, and how we can help those that are affected. As always, you'll find information and links in the show notes, which you can find on my website, jenniferverdelin.com, or on Wild Connection, the podcast hosted by Podbean. Hey, and if you're enjoying the show, please give us a like and share it so others can find it too. Let's get back to my guest, Dr. Jeffrey Lockwood, so we can find out about a locust that went extinct and was the focus of another one of his books, Locust, the Devastating Rise and Mysterious Disappearance of the Insect that Shaped the American Frontier. I want to welcome back Professor of Natural Sciences and the Humanities, Dr. Jeffrey Lockwood, who's also a spectacular author and has written so many books. Last week, we talked about Six-Legged Soldiers, and this week, it is all about locusts. Welcome back to the show. Well, thank you. I'm looking forward to this. Oh, me too. And, you know, we kind of ended on on agriculture and, and that really led to uh, focusing on this book, which is called Locust, The Devastating Rise and Mysterious Disappearance of the Insect that Shaped the American Frontier. And I'm going to guess that a lot of people, when they think about the American frontier and, and all the factors that went into, you know, shaping that time, the locust isn't something that's on their mind. Um, so before we dive into the book, what is a locust exactly? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Um, so a locust is a very particular kind of grasshopper. All right. Um, so the cicadas, brood 10, that's about to emerge on the East Coast, not locusts. Right? Okay. Okay. Cicada is basically an aphid on steroids. That's okay. <laughs> totally different. 
right. I'll be back in 17 years. <laughs> there you go. Very good. So a, a locust is a grasshopper that has evolved this capacity for a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde transmogrification, right? So a locust in its, what we call its solitary form, it is indistinguishable from a garden variety grasshopper, right? It's, you know, brown or green and lives at low densities. But during periods of resource abundance, the locust is kind of an, what I call an opportunistic resource tracker. When there's moisture that, that signals an abundance of food coming, the, the, they uh, emerge and begin to feed uh, on this abundant food source and they undergo this transformation, which seems to be mediated by both contact and odor. Okay. And so as their population density increases, they begin to change uh, morphologically, physiologically, behaviorally. When they're solitary, they don't like to hang out together. Okay. Um, but yeah, you never see a bunch of grasshoppers, grasshoppers just chilling all... out together. Right. Yeah, uh, but the locusts become positively attracted to each other. You get this kind of positive feedback system, okay. so they get their density grows in it, and then they're attracted. And the nymphs, that is the, the ones before they have wings, the immatures, they form bands, right? These mobs. And so what happens is they they're, they're feeding. They begin actually in the desert locust, kind of the classic locust. There's about I don't know twelve, fifteen classic locusts around the world. Um, okay they undergo this phase transformation. So as adults, their wings are significantly longer. They, they uh, as nymphs, they feed on these poisonous toxic plants. And so they develop a warning coloration. Um, early on, they're kind of black and, and black and pink, and then they become pink and yellow, spectacular colors, basically to warn predators, you know, that they're distasteful, kind of like monarch butterfly story. Right. Um, and then as adults, they form swarms. That's these clouds of locusts that all fly together in, in, in search uh, of food. And they, in a sense, know evolutionarily that there's food out there because their population density is growing. And it's because basically in most areas of the world, it's because good rains have begun to fall. And that's why there's such a bummer for an African farmer. In, in a year of good rains, you've got crops and locusts. In a year of bad rain, you have no crops and no locusts. So. Right. Yeah. Well, so, okay. So what distinguishes, so this is it's fascinating. I want to circle back to what's going on um, in Kenya, you know, uh, as uh, later on, but when you say that they're just sort of your garden variety grasshopper, are there only certain types of grasshoppers that have the potential to become locusts? Yes, exactly. Um, and it's it appears to have arisen uh, independently, which is kind of weird, in uh, such that every continent other than um, Antarctica, of course, um, has had uh, locusts. And so it's not like locusts began somewhere and then spread all over the world, although some of them spread pretty far. But there's maybe only, like I said, 12 or 15 species. In the United States, we have 400 and some odd species of grasshoppers, right? And yeah. we had one species that had this locust life history, uh, lifestyle, the lifestyle of the locust. Which is what gave rise to, to this book. It was really talking about, was it, it was the Rocky Mountain locust. Right. Yes? Right. Now, okay, now... 
we, so what I've learned so far is that, you know, food abundance or resource abundance can trigger this shift that leads to swarms. So when was the first swarm recorded in the United States and where did it hit? Well, the first reported swarms were as we, we being Euro-Americans, moved west, right? And so those swarms were reported in the early 1800s. But we, meaning me and my folks at the University of Wyoming, uh, went up to the glaciers in, in the Rocky Mountains and found that that swarms had been depositing, basically, um, portions of their population into the ice where they would be frozen for four centuries at least. So it's a, it's an ancient, ancient, uh, it's nothing that we caused in a sense. It's a, It was a part of the landscape long before we got here. And so once the pioneers come here and start trying to plant crops, then the locust becomes a real problem. Now, if you're pre-agricultural, either in, in the United States or even in Africa, locusts could actually be a boon, right? They're, they're, they're tasty little morsels filled with fat and protein. They're like eggs with legs. Or eggs, eggs with, with wings. Or eggs yeah. with wings, I guess. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, okay. And but if you are trying to grow crops, then then this is not a boon for you at all. Did did people at that time uh have superstitions about what caused locusts to appear? Did they even, I mean, did they have a name for them as locusts or did they call them something else? Uh, sort of what did they think was going on? Well, they they did call them locusts, but they also referred to them as grasshoppers. There was quite a bit of confusion there. And of course, on the back east, right, they were calling cicadas locusts, which had everybody confused. <laughs> um, so uh, they did know that they were locusts. They did not know where they originated. They didn't know why they were coming. And so at that time, if you don't know why something is happening, blame God. So there was a religious explanation, but that kind of makes sense. If you think about the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, right? An angry God sent locusts, right, to punish the Egyptians. And so there was a connection between an angry God and the arrival of the locusts. Brigham Young was very clever when when they when the Mormon settlers violated one of one of the rules of of letting the land life fallow every seven years and the locust showed up, he said, See, look, angry God, look what you did. But others also thought it was sort of a the work of an angry God. So um, I mean that that's not that's not to denigrate. That's that's the explanation that for centuries, maybe for millennia, we've given to that which we can't explain through sort of natural mechanisms. That's one of the things I really enjoy about your books is how much history is woven into them and how you tell stories about our physical, cultural, and even spiritual relationship or religious uh, relationship with natural phenomenon. Now, I really loved the part where you, and so I'm going to ask you to share a little bit about it, the, where you describe sort of the sensory experience of a locust swarm. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the places, if you if somebody really wants to sort of get a vivid account, go read Laura Ingalls Wilder's Little House on the Prairie, The House on Plum Creek. She she gives a great uh, uh, little account there. Um, but basically what, so you're out in the field in the summer 
And then on the horizon, it looks like um, maybe a, a storm cloud is coming, which is not unexpected. Um, but it's a little bit weird of a storm cloud because it's not the dark gray that you normally have. It has a brownish or yellowish tinge, right? Almost like a dust storm, right? So it's kind of a sickly yellow, right? Mm -hmm. As it draws near and you're going, whoa, that's not a storm. And then you get these little sparkles, these glints. And sometimes it was described like um, like a blizzard. So it looked like sparkles, like maybe snowflakes, but it's the light reflecting off the wings of locusts. Um, and then as it draws near, they begin to pelt down. And at first it's, you know, one here and there and whatnot, and maybe bouncing off your body or, or landing and crawling about. But pretty soon, that's kind of the leading edge. Pretty soon there's this humming, buzzing, thrumming kind of sound as millions or billions or in one famous case trillions of locusts descend and you and the sky i mean it doesn't it's not like an eclipse it doesn't go black but it it does become darkened kind of this yellowish brown light you're being pelted by locusts that are crawling all over you snagging in your hair crawling on in your clothing um they got these little spiny legs they're feeding on everything you're actually watching your crops almost melt away before your eyes there's nothing you can do you're watching and if you're a subsistence farmer as was the case with the early pioneers you're watching your food disappear down the gullet of these insects and they would land and stay for days sometimes maybe for hours you didn't and they would land in one a swarm would descend in one place but not in another so it was like a tornado what did you do but when they would leave, there would be uh, the Latin term for locust is locus ustus, which meant burnt earth. And it looked like the earth had been ravaged. Not, uh, um, not a leaf was on the trees, not a stem had leaves. Um, it was all gone. Now, the upside, we should say ecologically, is if you could make it through that year, right? which I mean, we're not talking about a market, we're talking about a subsistence economy, they left behind an enormous amount of nitrogen. Right. So they were great fertilizer, but you don't get to cash in if you starve over the winter. For sure. And, you know, and I think you have a chapter where you describe this as like the third horseman of the apocalypse, where basically for early settlers, the arrival of locusts basically would bring them to their knees. And it's because of this. And it wasn't just crops. I mean, they also, um, is it, and I don't know if that's what's happening right now in Kenya, but there's some damage to livestock as well, uh, but I, I couldn't quite understand how or what. Um, most, <laughs> is it the forage that's gone? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So then they starve, right? Right. They basically, although there are reports of locusts eating the wool off a sheep, I think that might be a slight exaggeration. Although anything that, that has moisture or fat, um, they're going to chew on. Um, and so they, they, they will chew on. Well, and the other thing that they, they would eat leather. Really? Um, they, they would chew on wooden handles because of of the, uh, the 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 salt, the sweat on them. So they become pretty indiscriminate feed feeders when they are in a swarming phase. Kind of like those assassin bugs, right? Your threshold for <laughs> what's food comes down to door handles. Um, okay, so now I'm curious. 
what makes a swarm so they come they enter the swarm phase they move from place to place leaving scorched earth burnt earth nothing left what happens to them that they go dorm, d- dormant from a swarm phase to back to regular old harmless <laughs> grasshoppers um how does that ha- what triggers that shift back yeah and that's that's exactly the term to use right so they move back and forth between the solitary and this gregarious or migratory phase basically a, a, a number of things can happen so they're they're taking advantage of a pulse of of abundant food and so from and there's typically for the rocky mountain locust there is one generation a year right there may have been two in the southern united states but probably one generation a year so each so they lay their eggs in in late summer um the next generation comes out and if over that period of time there's there's a shortage of food that would mean that they they don't reach this threshold remember the the gregarious phase is driven by their own population density right so if there's not enough locusts to sustain a high level of either the pheromone or physical contact, it's actually hair on their back legs, at least of the desert locusts. So if they don't get the stimulus, um, they resort or return to their solitary phase. The other thing, of course, is they could only move east so far before they would run out of, out of um, survivable conditions. Um, they don't do well in forested areas for the most part. So cold. And then you know, anytime you've got that many animals of any kind in one place, pathogens are eventually probably going to knock back the population. So something will bring the population down, which means they'll return to their solitary phase. Now, the the, the, the Rocky Mountain locust would disappear, in a sense, across most of the continent during these periods of recession, and it would only kind of eke out a living in very particular habitats in the Rocky Mountains, hence it's named the Rocky Mountain Locust. Well, you know, it's interesting because I think, um, well, you, you describe in the book where a farmer, you know, was sort of turning the soil to see what was salvageable. And 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 basically there were, I don't know, hundreds of uh, X number of eggs per square inch. And st- use that to sort of describe the estimated number. And it turns out that was not such a bad guess or bad way of describing it. But you talk about in this book how because of the devastation of these locust swarms, it attracted the attention of scientists. And one of them was Dr. Albert Child. And 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 there's something called an Albert's swarm. And I'm assuming that's as a result of, of this this work that that he did. What is an Albert swarm and how is it different from an ordinary swarm? I, I gave so I gave it the name Albert's Swarm. Oh, okay. Um, so, and it's, and I did that because it's probably the best documented swarm and the largest swarm in recorded human history. Um, so Albert Child, he was a, he originally was a doctor. He, he tried farming. Basically his love was meteorology. And so when this swarm was passing over the central United States, he was well positioned uh, to take measurements of its depth. He telegraphed to determine its width. He recorded the flight speed of the locusts. And his calculations were kind of irrefutable in the sense that they were very systematic, very rigorous. And he he kind of takes the tone in his report 
of objectivity, but then he kind of lets slip that it's kind of blown his socks off um, because he can't even believe, in a sense, his own figures. So Albert Swarm, sometimes I, I like to call it the perfect swarm because my book came out shortly after the perfect storm, was 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 staggering. So it would have covered the state of, well, let's just say the state of Arizona, Arizona, Wyoming, Colorado, they're all about the same size. Um, it would have covered the state of Arizona border to border. That's mind boggling yeah. in, in scope and size. I know the size of these and picturing them on a map and just sort of it's that's it's incredible. And, and now now he wasn't the only scientist that you talk about. In fact, you talk about um, a Russian scientist, Boris Petrovich Uvarov. Uvarov. Um, and there was something about the life history that he discovered that kind of, I guess, in a way, turned entomology on its head. Uh, what what did he discover and why was it so important, not just beyond, you know, not just for locusts, but sort of in general? Well, so he discovered the phase transformation, the ability. So up until uh, Uvarov, uh, everybody thought there was a, um, a locust and then then that was a different species, entirely different species than this other thing that occurred in low densities. And he was able to show through systematic experimentation that this one thing that we thought was a species, well, actually what we thought were two species were really one species that could transform from one phase to another. And, and when you realize that um, this capacity for an utter transformation, so different in appearance that good taxonomists had them named different species, um, you realize how plastic uh, life, in particular insect life, can be. And so um, it also opened the doors to all kinds of possible management. So if, it if, if these were the same species, then you might be able to prevent the transformation when the populations begin to increase. And so rather than just throwing up your hands and, and saying your prayers and maybe lighting some smoky fires when the swarms come, the possibility of finding their origin, where are these coming from and can we take them out, if you will, during their, during their most vulnerable stage? See, we often wanna try to do something in the midst of a, you know, like a, a forest fire. We get all excited because there's a forest fire. Well, it's really the lightning strike is the time to stop the forest fire. So it was a, a real transformation in terms of thinking about pest management. And so before that, so let's say pre-Boris, post-Boris, <laughs> how, what were some of the ways that humans were trying to fight back? I mean, what did you have at your disposal to do about a swarm the size of Arizona coming anywhere. So what, so what you do, well, first of all, remember, remember prayer. That's, that's, that's that always seems like available. A, it seems like, you know, go into a cave and pray. It seems like all you can really do. Well, let's say, you know, let's not pick on, let's not pick on the 19th century, you know, you know, turn to God thing. Right. Because sure. remember after hurricane Katrina, there were, Right. There were American Christians who said that that hurricane was the act of an angry God punishing a sinful New Orleans. Oh, and I was. Yeah, I wasn't making fun. I was. Sort of, oh. I mean, I, I think what else would you have at your disposal? 
So, so one of the things that was done was states would set up a bounty system and they would pay for, for bushels of locust eggs. So you would bring a bushel of locust eggs to the county courthouse and they would pay you. Right. And this was kind of, you know, it wasn't driven by Uvarov's notion, but it was this notion, right, that during a swarm, you can't do anything. But if we could take out their eggs, right, then it's basically digging up the seeds so that you don't get an outbreak of the weeds. Right. Sure. Um, so bounty systems were used during the, <laughs> what's great, American ingenuity. We invented all of these devices, everything from flame, you know, basically horse driven flamethrowers. Uh, uh, that, and things that would disperse a uh, toxic sulfur fumes onto the ground. There was um, there were pans of tar oil that you would drag by horse to get the the nymphs to hop in there. All kinds of there was a horse drawn belt driven vacuum cleaner that people <laughs> tried to use to suck up. Uh, again, this was the nymphs. Ditching was very popular. What's so, ditching? What you would do is once hatching had occurred, the, of course, the young locusts can't fly. So you would dig long trenches, right? This was like trench warfare. Long trenches and then put oil or kerosene or even water in the bottom. And the, the, the bands, they call them bands of nymphs, would march and they would go basically fall into the trenches um, and, and they would be poisoned or drowned or you would bury them. And, and actually, the, the, the government scientists came up with these sort of optimal depth and width um, for, for a locust trench. So that was done. Um, people, people tried dynamite. That was my favorite. And criddle it's, mixture. There was something oh, called... The, what is crit, I What on earth is criddle mixture? Please criddle, tell everyone. The, the criddle mixture. We're early, early, early in terms of... In, chemical insecticides. We're pre-DDT, right? So what we've got at this point is basically the arsenicals, right? Arsenic-based. Um, and so a criddle mixture was basically this mixture named after a guy named Criddle, right? Who mixed uh, arsenic with uh, basically, um, <laughs> you could, I mean, think of oatmeal, wet oatmeal, right? Um, and so this was basically a brand mix and then you would spread it from the back of a wagon and, and the locusts would feed on it. It wasn't, I mean, the problem was, you know, there's no real device for spreading this stuff far and wide. Um, you, do kill, <laughs> you do kill some locusts, but you have a pretty good chance of killing yourself or wildlife. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, so early insecticides were not very effective, mostly because, you know, of something of that scale, you can't put out enough. Um, and if you did, you'd probably be killing your neighbors um, as well as killing the locusts. And these were the days of London purple and Paris green, right? Yes, these, Paris uh, green was. Wasn't it a lovely, a lovely name? <laughs> a lovely name. Um, well, I think Paris green was lead arsenic, arsenate, which combines two of our very favorite poisons. Yeah. It, it, well, and ultimately, right, these swarms disappeared as the the Rocky Mountain locust went extinct. It did. What what happened? What do you think happened to the to this particular species that we don't have this anymore? No, no, we don't. Well at least as far as we know we don't we haven't seen one in more than a century, probably 116 years now. Um 
our best guess, and this was based on a whole lot of of, of uh, historical research as well as ecological research is that during the recession periods, so when there's not swarms, the entire species would collapse, if you will, back into what was called the permanent zone. And this was a, a, an area identified by Charles Valentine Riley, America's most famous economic entomologist. So these locusts would recede back into basically sanctuaries in the sandy, well-drained fertile river valleys of the Rockies. And so this were places where food was always available, high quality sort of sandy textured soils. And so they would hang out there waiting until, if you will, until um, an opportunity arose for better conditions for them to spread across North America. And so they were highly concentrated. A little bit of the, the, the equivalent that I, I, I like to use is like the monarch butterfly. Right, so the entire population of monarch butterflies, um, uh, excluding right, excluding uh, that uh, those of, of sort of the, the the west coast, but most of the continental United States, all of those butterflies uh, come from um, the uh, mountainsides above Mexico City. Right? Yeah, they all aggregate there. Them, yeah, they aggregate there, and so they are they go through what I call an ecological bottleneck. And during that, they're incredibly vulnerable to extinction. Yeah. Okay. And, and it turns out the locust kind of was like that. Now, it didn't happen every year, but it was the same idea. They went through an ecological bottleneck. And these well-drained sandy river valleys turned out to be exactly the places that were wholesale converted to agriculture during the gold and silver mining booms in the late 1800s. So... It was a case of habitat destruction, uh, the utter transformation, plowing, grazing, flooding, flood irrigation of their sanctuaries uh, during a period of, of high vulnerability between outbreaks. Well, it's interesting because some people might say, well, whew, what a relief. It's gone. But, I, you know, I want to circle back to something you said earlier, which is the the ecological benefit of those kinds of swarms is they deposit a ton of nitrogen and you know, that's your natural form of a fertilizer rather than sort of synthetic fertilizers that get mm -hmm. used because we've depleted all of the nutrients in the soil or I've lost topsoil and, you know, and, and we're not able to get the kind of yields that we need to sustain larger populations. Um, one thing that I found, I want to shift a little bit before we uh, talk about what's going on in Kenya and then your uh, wonderful opera. I just want to touch on something that I found really interesting because I think it has implications today. I mean, we're in a we're in a different situation. We're in a pandemic, but you talked about the impact that locust swarms had on society, politics, and ultimately public policy and the role of government in taking care of its citizens. And um, you talked about how uh, the locust swarms in the 1800s forced the United States at that time to think about wealth, poverty, and the responsibility of, of, of government. Can you share a little bit about how some of those issues played out with respect to the locust? Right, very right, good. Um, so our notion then, and quite frankly, a persistent notion today, is that poverty um, is, is a character flaw, right? You're poor because you are 
lazy, um, you've done something wrong, um, you're not hardworking. Um, so poverty was um, sort of an indictment of, of your character, right? And that was the notion. Um, you could always pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And so we had at that, during the 1800s, we had this notion of the yeoman farmer, right? That, that these were the, you know, these were the salt of the earth. These, you know, these were the people on the frontier doing all the right things, right? But they, despite their, all of their other virtues, right, were, were becoming decimated, actually uh, horrifically decimated in terms of not only economics, but in terms of starvation. And it was also clear that uh, the locust was occurring at a scale that state and local governments could not respond to. No amount of state funding was going was to solve this problem, uh, identify the problem. And so we could think of the U.S. Entomological Commission, that is Riley and his pals, as sort of the first big science, federally funded big science to, to, to understand. People had all kinds of crazy ideas about that. They thought that, that swarms had a king and a queen. And so if you killed the leaders, you would you would disperse the swarm. I mean, there were just really bad ideas. Well, there was it fits with this sort of narrative that we have of how to conquer things, right? There must be a leader. If a we leader. just take out the leader, then everything will be fine. Right. Yeah. Um, so it was big science. It was also clear that really hardworking people were suffering terribly economically as well as physically through no fault of their own. Mm-hmm. And it was this realization, and actually, is, this kind of comes on the heels of a major hurricane down in Texas as well. There's this realization that that poverty and and, and misery um, can strike people at enormous scales um, in an undeserved kind of way, and so the role of the government, right, shifts um, to attending to those who are in desperate need at a scale that state and local governments um, can't handle. Um, and that's, that's a pretty big change in our understanding of ourselves, the role of our government. I mean, you think about it today, right, with, with COVID, yeah. you know, and, and all the things that got screwy when we tried to um, shift all of the responsibility to the states, um, you know, they did the best they could, but the states were not going to come up with a vaccine. No. <laughs> right. Well, and I mean, and so those parallels, right? I mean, when you think about the sort of agricultural disaster that locusts caused and now a, a pandemic and disease disaster that has caused people through no fault of their own to become unemployed or poor or not be, you know, homeless. And this, and it was on the States and the States said, we can't, we don't have the resources for this. Right. And so the federal government had to step in. And so it's sort of a, an interesting, almost like a, a, a repetition of something, but just using a different, disease or different disaster. It is. It, what it points out is how fragile human life is at the margins, right? And yeah. so COVID is devastating to those who are at the economic margins. And the locust was devastating to those who are at the economic margins. And so if you are right there, right, in terms of making it, um, you can be pushed over the edge by, by swarms of locusts or pandemics. 
Well, and yeah, and that's what's happening now for some pastoral communities um, in Kenya. So I was reading a number of articles about the locust swarm that I think started in May of 2020. And, um, and a lot of those communities are facing starvation because there's nothing for their cattle to eat. But there was one company that was working with farmers to have them harvest the locusts in order to convert them to either animal food or fertilizer. Um, does this kind of harvesting of locusts have any actual impact on the number of locusts? I mean, is it possible to harvest enough to kind of make the swarm go away? No. Um, and actually, Riley, you know, C.D. Riley had the same idea in the U.S. And he actually commissioned uh, uh, St. Louis chefs to come up with recipes for locusts. Um, but the idea that he had in the 1800s is actually very similar. That is, we're not going to eliminate the locust uh, swarm by harvesting, but maybe we can use the locusts as a food source to get the human population through a period of time of food shortage. Um, because the locust will, they will end. And if we can if we can get people somehow to bridge that food shortage, in this case, by using the locusts themselves as food, um, maybe we can, can not end the swarm, but we can end the famine. Okay. And I mean, in many places around the world, insects are something that people eat, including grasshoppers. Um, yeah, and, yeah. And so... And I think there's also some recipes floating out there now for the ch cicadas, the cicadas. How do yeah. you say that? Cicada, cicada, cicada. How do you <laughs> tomato, tomato. <laughs> Locust is very easy. <laughs> there you go. Well, I've, I've eaten grasshoppers. Um, what do they yeah, taste like? Uh, the closest thing is a mild shrimp. Really? Yeah, because they're an arthropod. So actually, so and and so you basically catch them, pop them in the freezer. They die. You pull off, pull the head that pulls out the gut, right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a way of gutting them. Wings and legs too crunchy. Get rid of those, and then you've kind of got this little tube of of basically muscle and fat. Um, and then it's it's a, just like a, a little bitty shrimp. Uh, you can do any. You can bake it. You can saute it. You can pan fry it. They're really good in a walk, and because they have a waxy cuticle, um, if you if 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 you use like a curry or a salt with them, that adheres very nicely, so they pick up flavors. Okay. So yeah, there's lots of things you can you can do with them. But now with shrimp, you sort of remove the cuticle, don't you? You do, but it's the the can insect you eat cuticle the is okay. You, I, I, actually, you can you can you can actually eat the you can eat the outside of a, a shrimp too. The the outside of the of the, of the grasshopper is much thinner. Okay. Um, and, and so you don't kind of get that, you know, that, that kind of chunk of stuff that you want to spit out. Um, right. Right. Just all crunch up. Right. Or shards of, of yeah. exoskeleton. So yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'm just thinking like, Ooh, that's sharp. Huh? I don't know. <laughs> um, I've never, I've never eaten one, so I don't know. I feel like I would want them fried. Like um, I feel like, you know, like popping little fried grasshoppers yeah, and yeah, grasshopper kind of tasty with a little salt. Mm -hmm. Truffle oil? I don't know. There you go. Um, so do you think, and a lot of people have, not a lot of people, so I, that's very generic. Let me say, I've read some articles where there's talk about how climate change 
may impact the frequency of swarms like the one that's happening. Is that, is that, if they're about food abundance and the climate change maybe changes precipitation or we have drought, how would increasing drought and reduced precipitation lead to more swarms? So this last swarm, this last outbreak that we're getting in Africa, actually um, it looks like it began in Yemen. Okay. Um, so it began in the Middle East. Now it's moved across the Red Sea. So it's in now... You mentioned Kenya, but it's also in Ethiopia, Somalia. Okay, so it's a mess. Um, but what happened was that there were two, uh, I think in that part of the world, we call them typhoons. There were two enormous rainfall events that swept up through the Middle East. Um, and they were kind of almost, uh, they were timed perfectly. Very unusual to get such large amounts of rain um, in, in sequence like that. And that's apparently what triggered the initial uh, outbreak of the locust that then sort of becomes this, you know, positive feedback, self-fulfilling prophecy thing. Um, and so, and it appears that th that was very unusual weather events that they have linked to, okay. to the warming of the Arabian Sea. Um, and so when you get these, these weather events, and, and, and it's not only, they may be more frequent, but they also become radically unpredictable. And so we don't really know where this is all headed. Um, except that, and of course, drought is a funny thing. It's it's not uniform. Uh, some places are, are under drought and some places aren't. Um, yeah. And of course, the problem with the darn locusts, at least, you know, the desert locust is they flourish when when the crops are flourishing. Sure. Yeah. Well, and that's that's the the damage for the anyone relying on agriculture for food, which we all do. Uh, 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 the whole world does really. Um, I'm telling you, if you love history, biology, and even insects, and if you didn't love insects before, you're going to love them now. I know I do. And, and it's called locust, the devastating rise and mysterious disappearance of the insect that shaped the American frontier. It's it, that book is, is a rich and deep exploration of how, you know, what I love is this podcast is about our connection to nature. And, and, and this is a really great example of how deeply connected our experience, our lives are tied to nature. And, and this story is told through the lens of one species. Well, actually more than one species, the locust, because there are <laughs> about 15 or 16 different species, but the one that we had here, which is now extinct. And Speaking of stories, Jeff, you are also a librettist, um, and you wrote a libretto of uh, for an opera that's based on this book. And for those of you not familiar with that term, uh, libretto is you wrote the the words for the singing portion. Is that correct? That's right. Okay, That's I got right. that right. Okay, so now everybody can listen to this on YouTube, and I've got links in the show notes, uh, not only to your website and your books, but also to this. But I'm wondering, what, where did this come from? This interest in in, in crafting a, a, an opera, and and what motivated you to do this? Right. So I've I've enjoyed opera for many many years, um, and and I like it because it's so artistically rich right it's all of the arts in one place right the visual arts literary arts performing arts it's all there um, music of course um, and so it's it's fascinating in terms of its drama scale scope the 
it, it's an imagination, right? Because if you can't, if you can't willfully suspend disbelief, right, then don't go to an opera. For that matter, don't go to a musical, right? Sure. Um, so it's, and and so what it what had happened was I I put together a. a uh, a three week long workshop up at the Ucross Ranch, which is an art residency, and combined scientists and artists to, to co create. And one of the co creations was between a geologist and a composer, and they wrote um, together um, an aria, uh, which is sort of like one part of an opera uh, that, that, in a sense, sung the story, the geological story of the Powder River Basin. So I, I, I watched that and went, holy cow, the, the story of the Rocky Mountain locust is epic, right? And so, you know, in opera, you want big story, right? right? Um, and I thought, this is a big story. And the composer, uh, Anne Gutso, is at the University of Wyoming. Um, and I had come to know her in various ways. So I, we kind of threw out this idea, gee, what if we told the story of the Rocky Mountain Locust through opera? Um, and so she got really excited about it. And we managed to get some funding for, for the early version of it. Um, but it became a real challenge for me. I loved it because I love short form writing. And so I had to take a 100,000 word book and condense it to about 1,350 word libretto, 98% reduction. So how do you tell a story in that few words? Because opera singers take freaking forever to get a word out. So you <laughs> right. And then they repeat them. And so. Be right. You Many times to building it. Oh, building yeah. Crescendo. Yes. And so you have to condense the story. You have to just, so what is the essence of this story? And then you can't have 70 characters. We, were, we wanted this opera to be really accessible to the public. Uh, we wanted it to be artistically in, uh, uh, powerful for the aficionado, but we wanted an audience who had never seen opera to, to, to watch this. And it, so we thought it's got to be a chamber opera. It's got to be an hour or less. Right? Okay. People are not going to sit through a three-hour opera. So that, that constrained it. So in a chamber opera, you're not going to get um, you know, more than three characters. Right. So who are going to be my characters? Well, the locust has to be a character. Right. Sure. So but how absurd. Right. How are you going to have an insect on stage? Um, and so I, I was actually on a treadmill in my basement watching an opera called Amleto. And it's an opera based on uh, Shakespeare's Hamlet. Right. And so I'd been thinking about how to do a locust, how to do a locust. And then I realized watching this, if you remember Hamlet, one of the, you know, the main character in a sense is the ghost, mm -hmm. right? So I thought, oh, what if we have the ghost of the Rocky Mountain locust, right? And so that became the character. So a scientist is visited by the ghost of the Rocky Mountain locust who haunts him yes. until he can determine what killed her. Um, yes. The other character is a rancher. Yes. And so those three characters sort of interact in this. Um, and, and, and there are moments, I mean, if you're going to write it, I mean, it's, it's both very serious, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and has this sort of heart-rending message. But it's also a little bit funny at times because it's a little bit ridiculous. But that's what opera is, right? Sometimes yeah. it's ridiculous. But in the end, um, 
and we we got audience participation and so it's um I, it, it, I thought it, it was great and and what I love is you know so we you know you you span this interdisciplinary you know you're in the humanities you're in the arts you're 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 in the creative writing and you're a scientist and i think a lot of people think we're all just rational you know objective and we measure things and count them and that's it and and what i have hopefully been sharing with people on this podcast is that we are multidimensional and science is a very creative field actually. And so almost everyone I know that is in the sciences in one form or another is an artist or a writer or, uh, you know, a builder of something. Uh, I know someone who makes guitars. I know someone who uh, paints skulls. I, I know someone who does iron work, uh, right? Photography, painting. Um, and so how exciting was it for you to see this come to life in the form of an opera? It was, I mean, it was, uh, it was an absolute, I think, I don't know if there's been a higher point in my life as an academic, um, to see, and of course an opera, you know, it's, be an exaggeration. It's a little bit like a Saturn V rocket, right? So um, nobody knows how to build a Saturn V rocket, right? No single person. As a matter of fact, they say that was also true of the of, of sailing ships, right? That was sort of one of the earliest technologies for which no single individual had all of the skills and knowledge. And so watching the opera come together, I don't know how to compose music. And then the costuming, I don't know about the staging, the lighting, Watching the the um, uh, watching the musicians at work, um, watching the conductor. I mean, I had no idea the sort of the creative power and influence of 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 the conductor on the whole thing. And and nobody knew. I mean, all of these pieces were wonderful because nobody to this day sort of could could do this on their own to know the science. I mean, there's these philosophical threads that are woven in there. What is a species, mm -hmm. right? What is the meaning of an extinction? Uh, what is the role of numbers versus stories in terms of science? That plays this really big role as well. So I had that stuff, but I didn't have staging skills or knowledge. And then, you know, going to rehearsals and listening to the singers um, and, and, and the, I mean, just the discipline of a voice and the control. So one, so for instance, the rancher who's got one of the smaller roles in the piece, but his, his avocation is mixed martial arts. Wow. So, but he thinks they're basically companion, right? The, the voice and the mixed martial, because it's control of body, discipline and being present. And so he has this whole kind of philosophical structure in which opera singing and the mixed martial arts are companions. I love and that. Ah, oh, I mean, just, and then the voice control and, and watching. So the, the, the locust, uh, Kristen Colvin mm -hmm. actually does the stage direction. So what do I know? So I think you put people on stage, but they move around and you don't want them bumping into each other. Right. That would be bad. And I actually um, liked her costume. It was very shimmery oh. and, you know, and and so sort of describing when you were describing a swarm coming and how you you get the glittering kind of, uh, you know, a sparkle. Um, 
you know, it was, it was definitely reflected in her, in her costume. And so I think, um, how wonderful to actually have this thing that you wrote and then see it come to life in, in this other form has got to be, I I can imagine why that is really rewarding. Oh, it is. I mean, and then, so the soprano, Kristen, right, who plays the locust, it's not clear. And we, I love the ambiguity. At some point, she seems to be an individual locust. At some point, she seems to be a swarm. At some point, she seems to be the entire species. So there's a lovely sort of, 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 of movement there. But she must have, I don't know how many hours she and I spent where she wanted to understand this character. Am I the wise mother? Am I the scolding lover? Am I disappointed? Am I angry? And and so getting into this kind of, I'll just say, this spiritual artistic space so that she could capture the essence. And she plays this. I mean, there's points where she is, she is this wonderfully scolding teacher, right? right. But other times she, and, and people talk about this, the relationship, the movement between her and the scientist seems to be romantic at, at moments. I, yeah, it almost seemed like they were just lovers in this one scene that I, I saw. And, you know, and then I thought about, well, the vulnerability of, of, of the locust, does it know that it's going extinct? Does it experience anything about, you know, do we, do, do other species even have a concept that they are dying out? Um, and so, yeah, I did get that sense of that romantic kind of, I think he was uh, saying to her, I don't understand. I haven't been able to figure it out. And it's just this kind of um, moment. And so, you know, I know we're in the midst of a global pandemic, but are there going to be future live performances that people can look forward to? Actually, um, it, so we were scheduled last year to have Utah Opera perform it. So I'm not sure where it's gonna if it's gonna happen this year. Um, there's um, plans for it to be at at um, at um, uh, in Virginia, but our big plan is in um, end of October, November. We'll be going to Scotland. It will be performed at St Andrews uh, University. It'll be performed at the Glasgow Conservatory of Music, and we think that we are where we've we've applied. We think we have a good chance at having it performed at the United Nations Climate Conference, which will be in Glasgow. This is fantastic, so, and you've inspired me. I I I know I'm going to keep you on um, to talk to you about about a few things, but you know I, I want to thank you for spending so much time. Two episodes, and we only talked about two of your books, and of course this wonderful opera. So I encourage everyone to read Jeff's books. That's Dr. Jeffrey Lockwood, um, and watch the opera on YouTube. Uh, you can see the links on the show notes, and and thank you so much for writing these books and sharing these fascinating stories with us i thank you and i do invite everybody it's a one hour long opera it's in three scenes if the first scene doesn't hook you you don't have to keep watching but i'll bet you're gonna you're i bet you're gonna be hooked by that first scene you will you will and so thank you so much i really have enjoyed um learning so much from you and talking about all of your work. Well, thank you. It's, it's, it's been a pleasure. 
As I mentioned at the beginning, there's currently a massive swarm of locusts sweeping through East Africa, and it's not over. These social little buggers can multiply their population every three months, which is why it's so worrisome what's happening. As you heard from Dr. Lockwood, it's not the locusts themselves, but the fact that they are ravenous, eat everything in sight, and leave a wasteland behind them. Just because they're around Kenya right now doesn't mean that's where they're going to stay. They ride like the wind, or rather on the coattails of the wind, which means they can travel far, including reaching North or South America. This is what happened in 1988. A swarm hitched a ride and made it all the way across the Atlantic. Now, it may be hard to eat billions of locusts, but there are some attempts to turn them into fertilizer or cattle food. Eating insects is a bit trendy in some parts of the world these days, but the reality is that insects have been a staple in the diet of peoples all over the world for a really long time. For the kosher listener out there, not to worry, the Torah says four types of desert locusts, the red, the yellow, the spotted gray, and the white, can be eaten. You'll find a recipe in the show notes to help you get started. But the reality is that even if we ate locusts until we were bursting at the seams, it would hardly make a dent. Over 20 countries have been affected by the current swarm. The Food and Agriculture Organization, part of the United Nations, is on the case with the E3 locust tablet that uses climate data to predict where they may be headed next. Then there's an app, and now they're using satellite technology to alert everyone in advance. This means they can get ready to diminish the swarms, and hopefully that means stopping them in their tracks. The goal is not to eradicate grasshoppers, only possessed grasshoppers that have transformed into locusts. Right now, the tools are limited to technology that predicts the arrival and pesticides that kill more than just locusts. Hopefully we can come up with something a little bit better. Next week, we're talking about cicadas. You can see the insect theme happening here, and the insect eating theme will continue. One important thing to remember is that cicadas, while they're emerging in the trillions, are not locusts, and all these cicadas that make up Brood 10 will die as soon as they're done getting it on. More on that next week with entomologist Dr. Floyd Shockley, who is the collections manager for the Department of Entomology at the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. For now, enjoy a locust snack while listening to a locust opera. You can find the links in the show notes on my website, jenniferverdalen.com, and on Wild Connection, the podcast hosted by Podbean. Thanks for listening, and remember, if you're enjoying the show, please give us a like and share it so others can find it too.